Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're excited to bring you the first episode of a two-part series on critical minerals and mining in the West today. But before we get to that, let's do the news. We're going to start with some great news. President Biden has restored protections for over 9 million acres of land in Alaska's Tongass National Forest. Those protections are what was known as the roadless rule. They prevent logging and road building in the forest. They were originally in place in 2001 at the end of President Clinton's second term. They were then withdrawn by the Trump administration. The Tongass, of course, includes important habitat for trees including cedar, hemlock, sitka spruce, 400 different species of wildlife, and of course, it is a major carbon sink, storing more than 10% of the carbon in all of America's national forests. Some Alaska politicians and some indigenous nations are upset about the protection, saying they will hurt jobs in the region. But the tribal village closest to the forest celebrated the move, saying the protections will help preserve their way of life. Next up, we've got a ridiculous piece of legislation that the GOP is dead set on pushing through the House, even though it has no chance of becoming law. The bill would prohibit the Energy Department from tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve without making a plan to increase oil and gas leasing on federal lands. Now, the GOP's main talking point on the bill is that increasing public lands leasing will increase the oil supply, which we know here is ridiculous because, as we've covered many times on this podcast, oil and gas companies already hold tens of thousands of unused acres of public land under lease, as well as thousands of unused permits. So no, increasing leasing won't do anything to bring down the high price of gas. The good news is that the bill definitely won't become law since President Biden has already promised to veto it if it somehow makes it to his desk. Now, back to you, Aaron, to discuss our new progress report on Biden's first two years on public lands. Excuse me while I break out my soapbox here and and stand up on it. Uh, it's easy to criticize bad policy and bad faith bills. We, we do that, of course, when there's absurd stuff happening, like we're seeing in the House right now as we talk. It is harder to speak the truth to folks who, you know, are trying to do the right thing, but falling short. And that is where this progress report ended up. President Biden has done so much on renewable energy. He deserves praise for that. The Interior Department has issued a number of important policies, especially prioritizing habitat connectivity during its decision-making process. Of course, the Inflation Reduction Act that passed last year included a long-overdue overhaul of the way public lands are leased to oil and gas companies. We've talked about what a big deal that bill was. But this progress report also sounds a warning bell. Because the IRA has only been implemented so far with instruction memoranda. So all of the very smart ways that the Interior Department is prioritizing which lands to lease could, and I presume would, be erased on day one of a future administration that would be determined to do the bidding of oil and gas companies. We saw that with David Bernhardt over and over and over again as Interior Secretary. That means in order to make these good policies stick, the Interior Department has to do a rulemaking. And that takes at least a year between a draft rule and a final rule. I won't get into the weeds here. There is a link to the progress report in the show notes. But we break down why the timing is such a big concern here. The bottom line is that any rules need to be published in a draft form by this March or April at the latest. We are talking a four to eight week window to get these going. 
There is a whole alphabet soup of government bureaucracy in play here. Uh, letters like OMB, OIRA, CRA. The very short version, TLDR, is that the Inflation Reduction Act created a ticking time bomb that is going to go off very soon. Now, the bigger picture and the final word in this progress report is when we look at President Biden's record on protecting new public lands. And there, he is falling short of where President Obama and, believe it or not, even President Trump were at this point in their first terms. So with President Trump, we really have to draw a distinction between his administrative record, which was incredibly destructive, and his legislative record, which is surprisingly great. We talked about the Dingle Act, a bipartisan bill. President Trump signed it in March of 2019. That included 1.3 million acres of new wilderness designations, a new national monument and a new national conservation area in Utah. It expanded Death Valley and Joshua Tree. It was a big, important bipartisan bill. And then President Trump, right off the bat, signed the 2009 Omnibus Public Lands Bill. That was 2 million acres of wilderness, 600,000 acres across four new national conservation areas. It added thousands of miles to America's wild and scenic river system. So you compare that to President Biden. He has rightfully spent much of his first two years reversing the administrative damage of the Trump years. The Tongass National Forest, as we just mentioned, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, all very important, but also just digging us out of that hole. So in terms of new durable land protections, taking us beyond where the country was in January of 2017, President Biden is at around 400,000 acres so far. 50,000 acres at Camp Hale Continental Divide in Colorado, 340,000 acres of new wilderness and national conservation areas in Nevada that were included in the defense spending bill that Congress passed last month. But that's it. And when you consider that it has been two years since the president set the 30 by 30 goal, 400,000 acres in new protections in two years is not going to cut it. It would take us decades at that pace to protect 30% of America's lands and waters. And just calling a spade a spade here, Congress is not going to send him anything like the Dingle Act or the 2009 public lands bills that Trump and Obama had signed. So that means there's only one way forward. If President Biden wants to go into 2024 with a legacy of land protection that he can point to as a legacy or that he can campaign on, if he wants to say that America is on track for meeting his 30 by 30 goal, then his only option is to unleash executive beast mode for America's public lands. That is the conclusion of this progress report halfway through President Biden's first term. And now I'll get off my soapbox. All right. Well, that was a great recap. Um, still encourage you guys to go read that report if you want. We'll put it in the show notes. But let's get on to our interview. We're lucky to have an expert from the Colorado School of Mines here today to discuss what's going on in the world of critical minerals, specifically those used in electric vehicle batteries. These minerals include cobalt, copper, lithium, and nickel, and are mostly mined overseas, but we do have some of them here in the U.S., and we could see a big increase in domestic production thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, which included subsidies aimed at stimulating mining at home. So without further ado... 
Ian Lang is the Director of the Mineral and Energy Economics Program at the Colorado School of Mines. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here to discuss critical minerals. We're excited to have you because we have a lot of questions. Um, so I'm going to just jump in with our first one, which is what does it mean to be a critical mineral and who decides what is a critical mineral? So critical minerals are decided by the United States Geological Service um, and Department of Interior in the United States. They have a list. Um, it came from uh, an act or a bill back in 2016 or 17. Um, the definition is sort of like that they have, we have some vulnerability in their supply and they have an economic impact. So we might think of, of some minerals that, um, you know, there's lots of different places we could get them from. They're not going to be considered critical, or we can think of some that really don't matter too much to large industries or to industries we think that are important. And then again, they're not going to be critical. Um, and they're, they're updated every year or so um, uh, to which minerals should be on there. And then things do change. If you want to go into details, we can talk about uranium, which initially was a critical mineral, but then decided that that's more of a fuel mineral and not a not a, a non-fuel mineral and we do non-fuel minerals. Um, but yeah, so that, there, there's a list that comes from the United States Geological Service um, and, and the department, you know, talking to other folk like Department of Interior and Department of Energy. Um, actually, colleagues here, we kind of are in an argument. I think it's pointless to have the list because it doesn't really alter what the federal government can do for those minerals. It's just this like, hey, these things are important. Uh, but my colleagues feel like it are it means that people know that those minerals are important and we should be thinking about them and it sort of directs people's attention to those things. So it's more of a statement than a, a policy implication is what you're saying. Yeah, at this point, uh, I do not know of any specific policies that change if something is listed as a critical mineral. Um, so yeah, it's definitely just like a paper, yeah, pure paper document say these things are important. So when we're talking about that list today, if you were to, to categorize the most critical of the critical minerals or the most in demand today, which minerals are we talking about? Um, so you, 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 you highlighted a number of them in like cobalt, nickel, lithium. There's also rare earths. Um, but they can get very some very specific sorry, some very specific industries that use them. And it's, so it's very important for those specific industries, but maybe on a larger sense, you know, we don't have, um, uh, the, the general public would not be concerned about these kinds of things. So, for example, rare earths are used in, you know, these very specific magnets that are used in motors. Um, I would say, you know, you probably have some rare earths around your house. Um, can you function without, you know, can you function in, in, in the day without one? Probably, but things like, you know, they're also used in um, high-tech devices that are used for national security, so they get a lot of attention. So, um, and, you know, and the other thing is they're extremely small quantities. So um, you can also think of a scenario where it's not like, um, it's not like there's so much of it that's used that we need to have so much of it. It's extremely small quantities, but it does a very important thing in a product. Um, and so I would, uh, just to make you, if it helps, I would say, you know, oil is one thing, right? Oil is used in, in all across the economy. Um, many of these minerals are used in very small, specific sectors, you know, and we obviously see what happens when oil prices go up as it impact, you know, ripples through the economy. Um, similarly, you know, did you, did you know that there was a, you know, like a thousand times price increase of rare earths in 2011? Did no. your life change? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Something tells, yeah, 
Right. There'd be a, there'd be a, your life would change if there was a thousand times increase in price of oil. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Well, um, Ian, I want to ask you about the Inflation Reduction Act, but before we even get to that, I want to just back up and say, you know, we're sort of operating under the impression that we're about to see a big increase in demand for some of these metals, especially the EV ones uh, or minerals, excuse me, especially the ones used in electric vehicles. Is that true? I mean, every, yes, everybody projects that to be the case. Some of that is due to what we, we expect the, the subsidies, either through the Inflation Reduction Act or just state level subsidies. So there are zero emission vehicle mandates in a number of states, including Colorado, um, that are going to start pushing you know, um, EVs. Um, and then some of that is, is I think, due to uh, just you know, the belief that there'll be more climate pressure, climate policies coming, and so the future will, will look differently um, than it is now. And so, um, I mean, that's, that's just, we'll put this, that's what everyone expects to be happening, that we'll have a large increase in demand for a lot of these battery minerals. Similarly, you lose these, you use these um, like rare earths and these motors that are for offshore wind. Again, everybody expects there to be a big increase in offshore wind in the United States. Um, whether it actually happens, you know, is yet to, yet to be seen. And there are obviously, are, there are roadblocks. Um, we'll discuss clearly some of them here um, that may make, that may make people's expectations, uh, you know, incorrect, or basically we don't, the, the world doesn't follow what we expect to happen. So hmm. I don't know, hopefully that distinction, it comes through in my okay. answer there. I guess I'm curious, you know, we, they're already, it seems like I already see way more electric vehicles on the road every day. Is this increase in demand already happening? You're, you're saying a lot about sort of projections. Um, but are we already seeing it? Like, are we already, are, at the, are we at the very beginning of this sort of boom, if you will? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, it's, it's sort of expected with the investments being made by automobile companies in uh, producing EVs and limiting their selection of internal combustion engines. Um, you know, the fact that, uh, say like the United Kingdom and California have banned new internal combustion engine sales. Um, so firms are, are, are sort of, are making are getting ready for all these things to start happening. Um, you know, uh, the reason I don't want I, I'm hesitant to say that is what the future is, right? Is we do have you know things do change. For example, a DeSantis administration in 2024 could alter where people's investments are going, could alter the incentives to purchase one kind of vehicle or another. Restrict you know if we can't find uh, a way to mine some of these minerals and get them into the um, into the into the, the production process for EVs, that's going to, people are going to go to the car dealer and say, I'm really excited about this new EV. And they'll say, yeah, you know, join the wait list. There's mm-hmm. a two year waiting list. And, and people will say, oh, okay. Um, yeah, fine. I'll just take that car that I, you know, I'll just take it, you know, a new Corolla or something like that, that I've been driving for a long time. So that, that really gets into the, the global nature of all supply <laughs> chains, but in particular batteries and, and, offshore wind turbines and all of that. So which minerals right now could the U.S. produce more of and how much of that uncertainty that you're you're talking about could that address if there was a a major increase in production or mining in the U.S.? Yeah, so the the U.S. does have many, you know, uh, economic deposits or deposits that we would want to go mine. Um, In some sense, you might say like the geology of of mineral deposits is, is... it's not like one place has all of them, right? It's kind of evenly split throughout the world. And so for all of these minerals, we have some deposits. We have a world-class rare earth deposit in California that right now um, mines rare earths. 
Um, there are a number of lithium uh, deposits throughout the U.S. that are in different stages of trying to be permitted. Um, you know, there are nickel deposits, there are copper, de copper deposits, there are cobalt deposits. There are all in these, uh, and, and it's in, in it, to maybe to step back, like we know where all of these are. We have a good sense of what is actually there. Um, it tends to become a difficulty getting the permit to operate these things, or in some sense, maybe finding, uh, you know, a supplier to sell onto or a customer, sorry, to sell onto that's going to supply the next stage. Um, but if, if you, if we're thinking of the geology or like the Earth's crust, right? They're all, they're all here now. Will they? Could they meet a hundred percent EV fleets? Yeah, we'd probably want, you know, deposits from other places too. Then, or an, a really mature uh, recycling uh, sort of sector. But for what we would expect, say in the next five, ten years, we have those deposits here in, in the United States. Uh, it's more of a, I think the term might be social availability or social license to operate. That's uh, that tends to get, we'll say, get in the way. Well, let, let's go ahead and dive then into that social license to operate, which of course is also then part of the the permitting process. And we we've see we see a lot of these conflicts playing out, particularly around lithium in Nevada right now. How does the permitting process work, in particular, when you're talking about public lands, whether whether it's lithium in Nevada or the proposed twin metals operation up on national forest land in in uh, Minnesota. What does this process look like? And as much as we hear about permitting reform, whatever that looks like, uh, do you see a way to do that that fits that social license to operate, as you put it? Yeah, no, it, it is definitely a, you know, a difficult question, and I don't know what the if there is a right answer or what the right answer is, uh, I mean, I think certainly we've uh, maybe we as a society or in general, uh, we're not sort of against these kind of citizens voice or having citizens have a, um, a say in sort of land use patterns near them or, um, you know, the ability of a certain kind of industry to operate or, or what sort of things that uh, that industry might have to do um, and public lands. Right. So that becomes federal on federal lands. Generally, this becomes uh, the the National Environmental Policy Act kind of permitting process, NEPA permitting process, which um, you know a number of presidents for for a while have talked about either trying to reform or thinking about doing things differently. Um, I, as as a non lawyer, the way I think about NEPA is if you know what you're trying to do has a federal nexus or somehow touches something federally, then you go through the NEPA process. Um, so most of the mi mineral uh, deposits, you know, will be part of the Department of Interior, um, and then they'll go through the NEPA process through them. Um, there are some, you know, even if things aren't on public lands, it could be that they're uh, they're adjacent to public lands, and they might have to go through there, some. There's sort still of an impact, lands. sure. Yeah. Right. So the most famous example of that is the um, the Rambler uh, deposit up in Alaska, which is a cobalt copper mine that needs a road built through Bureau of Land Management um, lands in order to uh, sort of, you know, be able to mine it and then get it out into the market. And uh, famously, you might remember that. So the Trump administration had approved that road and the Biden administration took away that approval um, for that road. And so again, th that deposit itself is not on public lands, but it's in adjacent to where you require access to that deposit. Um, and you're looking for, you know, say a road to be built or something like that, you then go through the NEPA process. So, um, but yeah, as, as you related, um, 
you know, there's things like the um, uh, Thacker Pass or Rhyolite Ridge in, in Nevada that are both on public lands um, and uh, obviously uh, the Twin Metals uh, deposit. So then these go through the NEPA process. Um, so the, the Trump administration had, had been trying to improve the, the permitting process. Oh, in their minds, improve, I guess, um, the permitting process. And they they proposed uh, uh, some changes to the NEPA process, um, including things like uh, uh, a time limit, uh, a total time limit of two years, and had other, what I would call lawyerly distinctions, things that I didn't quite understand why they, how they mattered or what they mattered, but basically, you know, certain things can't count or do count or whatever. Um, uh, the Biden administration had then rescinded most of those uh, Trump administration um, uh, changes to NEPA and they uh, proposed new ones. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's, it's an open, it's an open question on, you know, anything that basically the executive branch has some, um, some leeway on or has some discretion, right. To like alter these, how these NEPAs actually formed, you know, since the executive branch flops back and forth between Republican and Democrats, you're never going to have sort of like permanent changes, for lack of a better word. So, you know, we might say, we might see the scenario where, um, the Biden administration uh, uh, changes kind of the way NEPA is interpreted and tells, you know, Department of Interior um, to act in a certain way. And then a DeSantis administration or someone like that comes in in 2024 and, re, you know, moves back. So um, what would be, in some sense, what would be really helpful would be Congress kind of clarifying some of these things. Because once Congress says, you know, or Congress reduces the amount of interpretation the executive branch has to do, that could be, you might think of like a more permanent change. And I think as you related, yeah, so the, the, um, when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, there was this promise to, to deal with some of those permitting issues um, uh, to Joe Manchin or kind of the Manchin permitting reform. And that never, that didn't go anywhere. And there's still hope it will go somewhere. But, you know, that would have been, that would have moved the needle, I guess I would say, in my mind, mm -hmm. right? Like, so there's a lot of things we can talk about that, you know, I'll say put pressure on the needle, don't necessarily move the needle one way or the other. But that would have been one thing that moved the needle. Let's get back to the global supply chain because looming right. over all of this and the the supposed need for for this permitting reform is China and this notion that China is so central to in particular all battery production that you have to do something to limit China's ability or dominance of this field. So what role does China play in the global picture? And, and in particular, mining versus refining versus production of these minerals. Where does where does China fit in? Oh yeah, perfect. So you you know you hit the you hit the nail right on the head there. Um, in sort of the the real where China has kind of the the domination or the market power is in that refining. What we may call the midstream, right? So upstream would be pulling the dirt out of the ground, refining and processing the midstream, and then it goes into some product, some consumer product that we all buy in the downstream. So um, you know. As, as I mentioned before, so in geology, the minerals are sort of spread all over the uh, the earth, and so nobody has a clear dominance there. Um, but uh, for the capacity to refine and and take what I like to think of as you know you take you don't just you're not just going to grab some dirt and shove that in your car. <laughs> you have to you know kind of take that dirt, pull apart other stuff that you don't need, get it to a purity state, or get it in a certain state that you're then going to want. And that's what China has you know, basically most of the capacity in the United, in the world, sorry. Um, and, you know, kind of just the ability to set the, set the terms of what happens because most of, uh, of the mining or most of the, we'll say the dirt that comes out of the ground will at some point have to get to China or have some relation um, to, you know, to what China's doing uh, in that stage. And so, um, you know, the, 
certainly the the one of the we'll say one of the things that the Biden administration has tried to do uh, is sort of what, what I might call like industrial policy. What they're trying to do is bring this middle sector, this midstream sector, back to the United States with incentives either through things like the uh, Infrastructure uh, and Jobs Act or through the IRA, where the tax credits are linked to where are the minerals uh, sort of refined and processed. Um, and so, you know, and then there are other smaller things like um, the Department of Defense signed. Uh, basically a, a contract to help Linus, who's an Australian uh, mining company, build a rare earth processing facility in Texas, um, kind of get, basically just like guaranteeing that, hey, you know, don't worry about finding customers. We're going to be your customer. Here's some, you know, here's the money. Go do it so that we have this thing. And so, you know, again, there are some things maybe on, on the executive branch side, and then there are some things that Congress has, has done kind of whether you say, you know, at the behest of the Biden administration or, at, you know, um, that's really what they were hoping for. But you know they're, they're trying to sort of counter this, you might say, like market power China, dominance that China has in the midstream sector um, so that there are other places that people could go. And in some sense, you're, you know, you're any supplier or any customer of a Chinese, say, um, uh, refining facility, if they say, you know what, I'm not interested, I'm going to go buy somewhere else, they sort of have a credible threat to say, you know. That you can buy from somewhere mm-hmm. else, because oftentimes right now there basically is no credible threat, or you know the the Chinese um, refiner can kind of say if you if we find out that you've signed a contract with someone else, you're just blacklisted and you will never buy from us again. You know, and that scares a lot of suppliers into saying, whoa, okay, like we'll just keep this going here. And sorry, you know, um, uh, like Rare Element Resources is a local company here in Denver who's been trying to build a rare earth processing facility in Wyoming. Um, you know, say, oh, they can't get people to sort of sign a contract to purchase from them because of things like that. Hmm. Threats, blackmail. Interesting. Um, well, so let's bring this back to mining, especially domestic mining. Um, it seems like even if there was more mining taking place here, it would all have to go to China anyways to be processed um, in, until we sort of get um a solid processing sector up and running here. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think, I mean, there, there are processing facilities in Canada and Australia for different minerals and, you know, the, the actual capacities obviously vary by country. So it, there is also this thought of, you can try to counter that through what we might call friend shoring, where you either get minerals that were, that were mined in friend, friendly countries like uh, Canada and Australia, or that, you know, you, you try to prioritize, uh, the processing in, in, in those countries. But you're right. I mean, I think in general, uh, if pe- folk talk about trying to increase the domestic mining without thinking about where is it being processed, then you're kind of, um, you know, you're missing uh, the forest for the trees. Um, and so what, what you, you kind of need both, mm-hmm. right, in order to uh, maybe have a, a supply chain that's sustainable and that's going to give, say, downstream uh, producers and consumers, right, confidence that, um, we'll say whether you want to call it whether this is clean, um, you know, whether that it, it deserves a tax credit from a legal standpoint, um, you know, that these downstream uh, producers like Toyota or Ford or, you know, GM, they build facilities in the United States. They're confident that they're going to get the supplies they need in order to actually produce there. Hmm. So I want to ask a clarification question really quickly. The IRA, I know, included some um some changes to the EV tax, sorry, the EV, yeah, subsidy, yeah, uh, what a tax incentive. Um, and um, w- was that, 
were those um there, there's a requirement in there that there's domestic mining or domestic um processing or both do you know yeah so i mean the irs has recently sort of tried to clarify some of that language and as like everything with congress congress writes something everyone has to kind of interpret it um and so i think some of that is still coming out and it's a little bit broader than than folks had had expected but the general idea is that the supply chain is um you know in the us or friendly countries um, my, my, again, as not a lawyer, my general sense is, you know, places we have a free trade agreement with, we sort of can't say, no, those don't count, right? So Canada and Mexico have to count, for lack of a better word, as, as being domestic. Um, but, uh, but yeah, generally, the, the idea there was, uh, in, or I sort of saw that idea from, um, uh, from Senator Manchin as kind of like a way to basically get people on his side for the permitting reform, because a lot of the car manufacturers, you know, I've heard of, were saying things like, those tax credits are great, but there's no way we could get them because we can't do anything. So, and since they, they couldn't, you know, have the permitting reform inside the IRA, they basically, you know, there needed to be a way to ensure that we actually really considered permitting reform. Um, and that mm-hmm. was kind of the... Um, kind of, trying to, trying to lock in stick. some some need yeah. for permitting reform. So I guess... Yeah, because then you get the lobbyists from the car companies to say, <clears throat> seriously, do this. Right, yeah. we have to have this, otherwise there's not going to be anything that qualifies for the, for the incentives and the rebates. All right, so that then brings us to the current permitting process and the social cost to operate, um, as you said. What... What are the environmental risks, first of all, of, say, starting up a, a massive lithium operation at Rhyolite Ridge or Thacker Pass? And are there are there any examples out there so far that you would point to that you think are good examples in terms of getting that community buy-in, that, that social license to operate that does not end up with years of litigation? Yeah, I mean, in, in reality, there, there there's very few, you know, non-coal, non-sand and gravel mines in the U.S. and even fewer that have opened recently. So we have very few examples of something that, you know, has kind of gone, um, uh, that you know, that we can say, oh, look, let's do something like that. And, um, you know, at least my sense is in uh, a lot of people were excited about the Piedmont lithium uh, project in North Carolina because that was on private lands. And you sort of thought, oh, well, this will get rid of all of those public land NEPA concerns, but then they've run into prob- they've run into permitting concerns from the local county and the local residents. And so, you know, it's it's hard to see a scenario where there is um, um, where there is sort of like there's not there's not there's not anything right that, that uh, everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, totally. We're, we're fine with all of this. And and I think this is also similar to what you see, you know, not just with minerals, but with a lot of, um, kind of manufacturing uh, or any, you know, we'll say even building uh, the, the the housing uh, concerns we have nowadays are with uh, the unhoused, right, is, pro- is partially because people don't want to build new, either high density housing, they don't want to build homeless shelters, you know, so um, everyone, permitting is, is across the economy. So. Everyone wants a booming economy, just not where they can see it. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. And so, um, you know, I'm, sh- you know, I would imagine, I, I don't know a lot as much about the Canadian and Australian sectors. I mean, they have, they have a different uh, you know, legal system, right? Um, but to the extent, if one wanted to see, you know, how does one, what does a, a, a current mine look like? How does it operate? You know, we could look to Canada and Australia and see see some of those because they have opened new mines recently. Um, you know, but I, I think which one of the things you're getting at is, 
um, we have this long history that we, you know, uh, that we see the evidence from now, say from 1880s mining or <laughs> 1870s mining, and you know, it's not it's obviously not the same thing then. And um, at least uh, in my opinion, one of the things the mining industry has a hard time with is explaining that we are not <laughs> we are not the 1890s miners anymore. We do things differently. Um, and so, you know, how that is going to play out is going to, I would say, you know, it's super interesting. It's going to be something that, um, uh, you know, hopefully someone finds the formula, but I kind of doubt there's actually a formula in some sense. Every place is going to be a little bit different. Um, yeah. So let me ask then, without maybe uh, taking too much of a detour, how are, how do things work in Australia or Canada, countries that we would think of as having pretty strong environmental safeguards that makes that permitting process different that has allowed mines to open up? Or are they doing it in a, in a fashion that would not fly under NEPA in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, with that, as not a non-lawyer, I can't really get into some of the legal sure. uh, specifics, but, you know, they... Um, what I see a lot in the United States is sort of like just this inability to kind of like make a decision. So a lot of these NEPA permits, um, they just kind of go on and investors kind of lose interest in uh, in the deposit because it's just taking so long to kind of get anywhere. You don't get any new kind of information. Are we getting any close? Nobody knows if we're getting any closer. And um, at least so, you know, recently, I think this week, uh, the, the Canadian government approved, you know, uh, a, a lithium mine uh, in uh, St. James Bay. And again, they talk about, you know, that was, it only took us four years to get to this decision. And, you know, we've made a decision. And um, and at least from my standpoint, maybe, you know, who thinks about either, either the mining finance side or the business side of it, you know, investors are going to be excited of like, can we get a decision? I don't want money locked up in this thing just forever. And we don't know, you know, if something's going to be decided or, you know, if something's decided, it's then immediately pulled, say like, the, the Rambler mine up in Alaska, where the, the road permit was kind of pulled, is when the administration changed. Um, you know, things like that just make uh, it really difficult to to sort of say, okay, this is how it's going to work, or this is how we can get there. Um, uh, yeah, does that or hopefully that gets yeah. uh, <laughs> close to your question. My apologies. Um, Ian, I want to sort of go back to something I asked earlier and ask again. <laughs> um, you were talking about how we do have these deposits here in the U.S. I've seen some maps that show that there are a lot of deposits in the western U.S. and it does seem like that's where people are interested in mining um, for a lot of these minerals. Um, do you foresee a sort of western U.S. domestic mining boom on the horizon? Um, and if not, why? Well, yeah, the, the, the thing that moves the needle, at least in my mind, is kind of the, the permitting. Mm -hmm. um, there's clearly a lot of um, economic incentives for these things. And again, and we know where these things are. Sort of as you're, you've seen these maps where these things are, right? We know where they are. Um, and so we really are just, I guess, and sometimes either waiting or the determinant will be, do we, do we get either a change to the permitting infrastructure? Do we get somebody who, who does it right and everybody else goes, Okay, that's the that's the formula. Just follow it. I mean, as a side note, I'm sort of skeptical that there is one formula, mm -hmm. right? And I'm skeptical that um, there is. You know, you just do you just be nice to this person, and it happens, right? That <laughs> it it doesn't work quite that way. Um, uh, but anyways, so yeah, what we what we really need to have this boom is some sort of uh, 
ease or make it, you know, I don't know if the word is easier because that's kind of implies um, uh, that it's, there's not the same safeguards, but, um, you know, it, whether it be, does the Department of Interior just need to hire a bunch of people that can just basically go through these environmental impact assessments and, you know, say, okay, up, down, you know, is, is, it, is it that they just don't have the staff? Um, is it that they're worried about some, you know, they need political cover? Um, mm -hmm. Is it that we need to limit the number of lawsuits after a permit is granted? Um, that's, that happened to the Twin Metals project right. where one of their permits was revoked after it was granted to them due to a lawsuit, right? Um, and so, you know, but the, all these things are really difficult to say, oh, you know, you know what the solution is, is to just like, don't let people have an opinion, <laughs> don't let people state their opinion there, right? That's not a very, mm -hmm. I don't think that's a positive way or that's going to be the way that it gets um Fixed, for lack of a better word. So, are there any projects on the horizon that give you optimism that there's a, a way to get to community buy-in and environmental protection and production in a relatively fast time frame? That you, you said not one right way, not one playbook, right. but at least some something in the pipeline that you are watching to say, okay, maybe this is an example that sets the way forward? Um, I would I would say what I am heartened by or what I sort of uh, <clears throat> see that uh, looks like a, a positive development is where there are mining assets that are uh, in already in operation and has already permitted, they're doing, a I would say, a better job maximizing the value of okay. that. So what, in, you know, in it, whenever you do mining, all these, a bunch of minerals are found together and, you know, you might put them through a, a refining process and, you know, looking for one mineral and then you kind of have, you know, we call the tail lines, but you have the waste, right? And what a lot of people who have operating facilities are doing is going back into that waste and saying, hey, there's stuff in here. Mm -hmm. And we, instead of just burying it again, let's get it back out, right? So there's um, the, the White Mesa Mill in Utah, which is run by Energy Fuels. It's uranium mill. Um, they, uh, they are basically going back, you know, going through what comes in and pulling out the heavy rare earths. Um, there, a, in Utah, there's a, a, a copper smelter that was letting scandium just kind of go through um, and not sort of grabbing it and pulling it aside. And, and they've said, okay, we're gonna make the investments to pull those things back out. Um, so I don't know if that, that's not quite the answer to your mm -hmm. question. I mean, I'm sort of heartened by the fact that people who have these assets that are operating are realizing that there's extra value they can take out of them. They hadn't planned and, on the first time that are now economically viable. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing that. Right. Um, like I said, I, I'm not, I'm not optimistic that there's a way out of the permitting um, conundrum. And, and, you know, sort of, like I said, this, this is not just a mining thing, right. We can think about all the discussion in the IRA around electricity transmission, right. We think we need to build a lot more electricity transmission all of the issues that are there, um, you know, and, and there's transmissions a little different than, than mining in terms of what kind of incentives we set up for the firms to compete with each other versus not. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't see a good way out and maybe that's political polarization. Maybe that's um, just increasing, uh, maybe increasing concern for the environment for specific environmental attributes, just to be clear. Right. So everything we do has an environmental impact, but, you know, sort of increasing, um, concern for specific environmental attributes, like like um, you know the that uh, the flower off the Rylet Ridge, um, uh, in that we we just you know basically can never can't can't really ever ever get there. Um, 
So yeah, I would say something's something's gonna have to sort of like I don't know what the word is like monumentally change, but something's gonna have to change, right? Because um, for the long time it's just been moving in this direction, which has kind of led us to where we are. Hmm. Um, Ian, you mentioned new technologies and also sort of existing access assets. Excuse me, and um, essentially, uh, you know, alternatives, I guess, to new mines. Um, and I've read about this idea of remining, remining tailings piles, remining previously mined materials. Um, what is the potential there? Um, and also, what is is there any permitting for remining? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, it would be along a similar lines. Of, uh, if you want to sort of go through another uh, you know, process um, for some of these tailings, or you know, there's an example in, of an Idaho mine that can produce antimony. It was an antimony mine for a long time. The mine itself, when it closed, kind of really um, you know, wasn't done properly. So the, the company is saying, we're gonna, we're gonna basically fix what they didn't do properly when they closed the mine in the 30s. Uh, and we're gonna then, but we're gonna also mine, you know, um, cause we can now, we see the tailings and we can understand better what was there. And all those kind of things, but you know they all they all kind of run into the same uh, uh, same issue in some sense of um, it's you know it becomes a permitting process. It's almost like um, opening up a new mine. You're going to have to get the ability to run those run that run those tailings or run that dirt through a processing facility or run that dirt through something. Um, you know, and similarly, um, I think you mentioned and we're recycling in there. Maybe uh, maybe I'm taking remining and recycling. But, you know, these are, again, these are all processes that we think people are, people aren't like, that sounds exciting to have in my backyard. <laughs> like we're, yeah, throwing yeah. More, we're throwing a bunch of chemicals on the dirt and, you know, <laughs> separating things or doing all that. So none of those are environmentally benign. And so we tend to have uh, the same, we run into the kind of the same issues, whether we're thinking of um, a new mine, you know, new tailings, um, uh, recycling and things like that. We're all going to kind of run into the same thought process of that where are we going to put these things is it you know uh, are people going to want them there is there going to be somebody who's going to buy them from us so you know we're, we're we have a bit of a chicken and egg problem again the the ira is trying to fix that a little bit by making sure there are customers that are ready for some of these um some of these products uh that we think you know we can start doing if if we're allowed to if we build them um and so so yeah uh, i guess that, that's my that's my thought of the answer sorry so, so let's close then by looking at recycling. I see folks talking about at some point in the future having more of a closed loop system when it comes to battery production, that we are recycling and reusing just about all of the metals that we are using. And eventually that means there is not nearly as much of a need for new mining. How far off are we as a country or a, a planet from that recycling closed loop system is that decade decades centuries off yeah well something that's going to depend again on like you know uh, are they going to be able to find customers do they have people who are ready to go you know sign contracts with them to build those facilities again as not a metallurgist you know what i read so the same things you read it seems like technically we can do it um and we sort of see that there's this supply of things in the future I know, you know, sort of increasingly what hits my newsfeed are we put on a bunch of solar panels in the last, you know, 15 years. Those things have a 20 year lifetime. Are we going to put a bunch of solar panels in the landfill? And of course, there's polysilicon and there's silver uh, and another uh, a bunch of other things in there. So we don't you know, we don't need to put them in the landfill. But how quickly is someone going to be able to ramp up that that process? And I believe it, you know, it's technically feasible to do that. 
um, if they were to pull those back apart, what is that? What is their cost versus the raw, the sort of the virgin material, the raw material costs yep. that come from, you know, not recycled process? Is there somebody that's going to say, hey, I think there's a market for, you know, this is a solar panel that's made from all recycled minerals and things like that. So um, it, it certainly seems possible uh, that that we could be there, and you know, and, I, and just maybe to if you allow me to get to the one point you brought up is that these things aren't used in the process, right? And so what I'm a little surprised I haven't heard of more in the, in the, you know, maybe more generally in the press is, right? So right, I think, you know, lithium prices have uh, about uh, doubled or tripled in the last year. Do you hear Tesla owners complaining about it? No, because they have their lithium already and that doesn't really matter. But, you know, but in, you know, an internal combustion engine or in, uh, you know, natural gas furnace, right? We come, we use something up in the process. And so then mm. the current, current changes to prices affect every, you know, people who have that technology, whereas in this kind of more, you know, mineral based energy system, right? Nothing is, nothing is sort of used up in the process. And so um, you don't have people who already have a product saying, wow, like life is tough. It became really hard to do what I want to do with this you know, because we have something that is used up mm -hmm. in it. And there's discussion, there's been some discussion in the academic literature about, you know, uh, sort of shocks to the economy. What might they look like in the future without something like oil or natural gas? Um, but, you know, I think that that's an important point to remember in this discussion of of uh, the mineral, of, let's say, a clean energy transition that's based on minerals is you're not really consuming anything in the process. And so think about how, you know, our economy or the shocks to our economy might be different if, you know, a large part of the, a large part of it was sort of insulated from whatever's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Be because you have that, that existing supply of what's already out there in terms of the Tesla batteries when they're, when it's time to recycle them. Yeah, exactly. So if you currently have a, a product that's working, it doesn't really matter whether lithium prices are tripling mm -hmm. or, you know, or falling in half, right? Like you have it. Because it that is your future supply. Yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. Right. Or that even, or even your current supply, right? Like nothing that's happening right, now yeah. matters in some sense to your decision making or to what you're doing mm -hmm. because of that. Sorry. Yeah, which, which seems like good news ultimately, yeah. which is that, you know, it's not like we're mining lithium and then it's going away and never to be seen again, like burned up for fuel. It's, sure. it's there. It can be recovered. It's just um, a matter of economics, really. Of getting that first part out. Yeah. I mean, you have to get it out at yeah. some point, right? And then once it's out, you can use it or once it's out of the ground, sorry. Right. Yeah. That you can right, then, right. The, the you recycling can is sort of more dependent on economics and, and um, making it cheaper or mm -hmm. affordable, or making it reasonable to use recycled rather than new materials. Well, Ian Lang, I think if there's one takeaway I've taken from this conversation, it's, it's that there is no easy path forward, that however we get there, it is going to be challenging and that it, it's going to be going to have to be either a consensus process or a top down process in which some stakeholders get told, no, you're wrong. Uh, and I think there's, I, I guess, a lesson so far from the courts is that that rarely works and just ends up dragging the process out even more. So uh, I, I guess I will just leave this on an optimistic note that hopefully everyone involved starts to recognize there is uh, a need for everyone to get to yes somehow if we are going to get off of the, the oil and gas economy that we've had here for the last 200 years as a country. Couldn't have said it better myself. 
Okay, well, Ian Lang, Director of the Mineral and Energy Economics Program at the Colorado School of Mines, thank you so much for joining us. This was very enlightening. Oh, it was my pleasure. Lots of fun. All right, well, we did, of course, start this episode with good news, the protections for the Tongass National Forest, so... That'll be it for today's episode. Uh, we hope you will leave us a review wherever you are listening to this podcast or send us an email, podcast at westernpriorities.org, with comments or suggestions. And stay tuned for part two of our minerals series coming out in two weeks or so. We're going to talk to two mining reform advocates about what's wrong with the mine permitting process and how maybe we can make it a bit better. That's right. Until then, thank you so much to Ian Lang for joining us today. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. 